0: Special General Convention 78 edition of the Collect Call. This podcast is an offering of the Acts 8 moment, proclaiming resurrection in the Episcopal Church. I'm Brendan O'Sullivan Hale, and I'm a layperson and a member of the Episcopal Church of All Saints in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's another show without Holly Powell, and I have to say that like you, I am bereft and wondering about the meaning of my life. I have found, however, that subscribing to the Acts 8 Moments Resurrection Reports, which Holly is curating, is some sort of balm for the soul. Go to Acts8Moment.org and sign up to receive daily reports in your inbox of where resurrection is being cited at General Convention, including how you can submit your own experiences. This podcast is about the intersection of liturgy and life. And I have to tell you, this podcast got a lot more intimidating to do once I learned a few months ago that today's guest was listening. Derek Olson is the man behind St. Bede Productions, and for my money, he's doing some of the best work on liturgy that's out there. Derek joined me to talk about A Great Cloud of Witnesses, which, if approved at General Convention, will become the successor to Holy Women, Holy Men. Now there's been a fair amount of controversy about both A Great Cloud of Witnesses and Holy Women, Holy Men, and Derek has written very thoughtfully about it on his blog. A lot of the confusion seems to revolve around a lack of a clear theology of sainthood in the Episcopal Church, but you don't need me to tell you that. Let me have Derek introduce himself, and we'll go from there.
1: My name is Derek Olson. I'm a uh, layman. My girls and I currently attend uh, St. Bartholomew's here in Baltimore. My wife is a priest in the diocese and is working as a chaplain right now, currently looking for a rector position. I've got some, got some good leads there. I uh, have a PhD in New Testament from Emory University. Uh, actually, met my wife. Um, when we were in seminary together, uh, I did a Master of Divinity there at Emory and then, then did my PhD there as well. Currently, I work a corporate job, um, regular working IT person. I've done a lot of programming in my life, and, and so part of the work that I do for the church is in programming things. Uh, I'm the programmer of the St. Bede's Breviary, and I have an active blog. It used to be uh, that unpronounceable blog, which is actually pronounced Hallewerk, but uh, I've recently changed it to uh, the St. Bede's blog, because that's a lot easier to say and kind of captures what, what I'm about. Uh, also uh, easier to spell. Much easier to spell, as long as you can remember how to spell bead. Right. (laughs) In the since last general convention, I was appointed to serve on the Standing Commission for Liturgy and Music. Part of my role there, uh, I'm the secretary for uh, the Liturgy and Music Committee. I'm also the co-chair, along with Sandy Wilson, of the Calendar Subcommittee in particular we have on our plates this triennium what to do with holy women holy men based on the feedback that we received from the previous general convention
0: so let's talk about holy women holy men for a minute so that's been uh in trial use here for the last few years now and uh can you just talk a little bit about the history of how that came to be and uh and what's been happening since then
1: so in 2003 then presiding bishop Frank Griswold said, "Hey, it's it's time for us to take a look at our calendar and how we handle our calendar and the people that we commemorate on it." So the church up to that point had been using lesser feasts and fasts. So lesser feasts and fasts was the first successful attempt to do a calendar of commemorations for the Episcopal Church, all that work started in 1957 under our good friend Reverend Dr. Matthew Shepherd Jr. He was part <laughs> of that committee. Fantastic.
0: And,
1: <laughs> yes, and and so he he sort of shepherded that work through the beginnings of the thinking about the new prayer book, and then. Uh, of course, the prayer book came out. It was authorized in seventy nine, uh, and then there was uh, another revision of lesser feasts and fasts in nineteen eighty. That was particularly important. That shifted that in some some fairly major ways. But then, since then, we've kind of been just incrementally adding on to lesser feasts and fasts in in a variety of ways. In two thousand three, uh, presiding Bishop Criswell said, "Okay, let's actually let's do this." right, let's do this uh, thoroughly. And so the Standing Commission on Liturgy and Music did a lot of work and such, uh, and in 2009 came back with uh, the proposal for Holy Women, Holy Men. As I see Holy Women, Holy Men, I see it as fundamentally a very large addition to lesser feasts and fasts. That is to say, I don't see it as being a fundamentally different kind of work, um, and I don't see it either theologically or um, systemically different from Lesser Feast and Fast. It was, it was sort of a, a very large edition. The resolution that had authorized it said, all right, we want you to look at a couple of things in particular. We need to look at diversity in the calendar, uh, reflecting diversity in the church. So we need to look at uh, gender balances. We need to look at having a of wide variety of orders of ministry. Uh, we need to look at, at people outside the Anglican family who have helped us. The other big piece of that is we also want you to pay attention to local commemoration and how the local, ex- lively experience of, of sanctity in living out baptism and the baptismal covenant, how that fits in. So in terms of the diversity issue, we had had on the book since 1985 a resolution to improve kind of the gender balance uh, that we had in the calendar. In 1985, if I remember correctly, 85% of the named individuals on the calendar were met. So that, that's not a terribly good balance. no. In 2009, uh, with the 136 or so additions that Holy Women, Holy Men proposed, uh, the gender balance was now 81% men. Okay, that's so, a little better. Uh, a little <laughs> bit, but that's not a whole lot of movement. No. Um, so, uh, so Holy Women, and Holy Men debuted then in 2009, and then the church uh, has kind of been discussing it ever since.
0: So it might be helpful just to back up for a moment because you've, in your blog, you've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about how the Episcopal Church does not really have a definitive philosophy around sainthood. So in a lot of the conversations around holy women, holy men, or even lesser feasts and fasts, uh, and then uh, coming up now, a great cloud of witnesses, um, there's a lot tied up, I think, in how individuals think about the saints. Can you give a little bit of perspective on how the Episcopal Church does or does not teach about sainthood?
1: This is a complicated issue, partly because we say that we are a big tent organization and, and I think we honestly want to be a big tent organization. The prayer book mentions saints in a variety of places, but it never spells out what saints are. It never even truly defines the term what a saint is. Uh, the closest we get is we've got that section in the collect, as, as you're well aware. We have a section for commons of the season, uh, then uh the propers of the season, then we have propers of the saints, and then we have propers for various occasions. So in those propers for the saints, we have a variety of categories. We have martyrs, uh, we have pastors, we have educators, we have missionaries, and then we have sort of a general saint category. Um, but that's, that's kind of the closest the prayer book ever gets to sort of working with the term. And this was done intentionally because there is a wide variety of, of thought historically within Anglican churches. On, on one side, you have uh, almost a, a Calvinistic approach that says, you know what, we, we don't need to be pointing out individuals. Uh, we all share in the common holiness of Christ. We're, when we are baptized, we're baptized into Christ, we're clothed with His righteousness, with His holiness. And so all of us sort of participate in that general holiness, and to call certain people out uh, for their sanctity is, is really asking for trouble. On the other end, uh, you've got uh, sort of of an Anglo-Catholic perspective that says, well, yes, all of us have been infused in baptism with the holiness of Christ and all. However, there are certain individuals who in their life and ministry have shown forth Christ to the world in amazing and heroic and startling ways that have helped the Church grow more into who it is supposed to be. Um, and, And so there's between the two still there's there's kind of a, a wide range and another factor in here too is I think that there is a certain reticence towards sanctity and holiness in sort of the broad middle of the church uh, just acknowledging that you know, with, with modern historiography, uh, with documentation, when people start talking about things like miracles or really perfect people, I, I think most of us get a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that. This is, I think, the kind of the broad sway uh, of, of opinions that are held in the Church. you got everything from the, yes, there are certain people who are specifically enjoying the nearer presence of God at this moment in a way that other deceased Christians are not, uh, and then you've got a perspective that says, uh, you know, we're all, we all share the same level of holiness, and, and to call other people out is, is problematic.
0: And, and so, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but from yeah. reading your blog, you've kind of staked out a middle ground, this kind of idea of uh, a necrology of the church or family history. Uh, is that fair to say?
1: Well, not entirely. Okay. That's that's what the Great Cloud of Witnesses proposal is trying to do, and that's not my personal position. Okay, I'm fair actually I'm a progressive Anglo-Catholic, uh, so all right, me I fully totally believe in in invocation of of the saints and all that good stuff. I've, I've got, got a holy card of Saint Benedict propped up here right next to my uh, computer. But one of the things that I was trying to be very conscious of is that I'm not trying to impose a. a progressive Anglo-Catholic perspective or any other perspective on to this calendar. And instead, I thought it was, it was very important to take a look across and to honor as many of those perspectives as possible in the best way possible. A great plot of witnesses does take uh, a middle ground in that it really takes into consideration that 2003 call... Uh, towards local communities, mm-hmm. only women and only men. I, I didn't feel did that. In some ways, it felt even, even more of a top-down imposition. But I, I think we do better. We are um, less hierarchical when we're really saying, all right, local communities, it's your turn to really step up and think these things through and make definitions that are really working into your personal sense of of holiness and and how your church community sees these things. And so what we've tried to do is to present a resource where uh, an Anglo-Catholic parish uh, can look and say, "All right, these these are are folks that we really recognize as saints, and other parishes can say, these are people we really want to celebrate without a, a commission of a few people of one part of the church saying, this is who you'll celebrate, and, and this is who you want.
0: Right, right. So can you tell me a little bit more, I, I think you've hit on a couple of them, uh, about some of the critiques or praises of Holy Women, Holy Men, and how that's informed uh, the work in developing a great cloud of witnesses.
1: That's a really important piece. As as I see it, we were trying to negotiate a variety of things. On On one hand, uh, you have. Ooh, we received the feedback that uh, th- there are just way too many names on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of our very old days are going away. Another uh, question whether the criteria that had been approved were actually being used, and to what degree, and to what degree some of the criteria could be set aside for the purpose of adding people on. So uh, l- l- let me just focus on that one for a second. Uh, with women in particular, since. You know women have only been uh, ordained in our church for the the past thirty years or so. The fifty year rule means that we wouldn't be able to have any law and any, any ordains uh, episcopal women uh, in the calendar. and And so the the date question in particular was one that that people were were concerned about. Um, uh, another issue is, is that you did have some folks, some church communities look at some of the individuals and say, you know, we think they're great people, uh, but we don't believe that they're saints in the the fullest sense of the term. And so to call them saints is problematic. Lesser feasts and fasts, up until the year 2000, didn't actually say that these people were saints. The word saint only crept into the preparatory material and some of the other material uh, in the year 2000. Mm. Holy women, holy men, the subtitle is celebrating the saints. Uh, So it's far more upfront about saying, hey, these people in this list, these are people the Episcopal Church says are saints. Uh, and, and so it was far more of a definitive statement, and at that point you get the pushback of, well, well, actually, we're not sure that all these people are saints in the way that we understand what that term means. And then you had uh, another set of, of uh, responses that said, hey, this is great, we love this, we've never heard of a whole bunch of these people before, and it's wonderful that we get to hear about them now. So, we have the challenge of addressing you know are there too many people? are there some people who aren't right for this collection um, and how do we respect uh, a real love for uh, the breadth of the collection and then, of course, we've got uh, issues like the inclusion of Rabbi Good in right. uh, the Dorchester chaplains uh, who's significant because uh, as a rabbi, he's obviously not a baptized person. Which raises uh, then uh, the question of is it it appropriate to have uh, someone who's not baptized, uh, someone who uh, is a a strong representative of another faith tradition in our calendar.
0: So let's pause on the Dorchester chaplains for a moment. Uh, So some of our listeners may not be uh, familiar with this issue. Can you tell kind of the the story of the Dorchester chaplains and a bit about why they're included? And then we can kind of go into some of the details uh, around the controversy around the inclusion of Rabbi Good.
1: Okay, so uh, the Dorchester Chaplains were chaplains in uh, I forget which World War at the moment, uh, but they were military chaplains who were on a vessel heading over to Europe uh, that got torpedoed, and so the, there were four of them who were working together. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic priest, a Doctor Reformed minister, a Methodist, and the uh, Rabbi Good, who was who was Jewish. It was, it was very clear immediately after the ship was torpedoed that there were not enough lifeboats to save the, the men on the ship. Uh, and so they, as a, a gesture of brotherhood, they gave away their life jackets to other sailors so that they could uh, be saved. So, you know, at least four more people would have a chance uh, at surviving. A board for chaplains recommended this set of, of folks to us as, as being really important to the chaplains uh, in the Episcopal Church uh, and, and asked for it to be put on the calendar.
0: So, so let's talk about some of the objections to the inclusion of a non-Christian on, on our calendar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it strikes me um, that there are um, a couple of veins of thought here. So there, there's one that says, how can we call a non-baptized person a saint? Uh, and then, um, you know, I, I think I've seen this articulated, but, it's, but there are also questions of, of cultural appropriation of a Jewish person and saying this, is, this Jewish person is, is a Christian saint. Uh, does that respect the authenticity of his own faith? And then there are also issues about anti-Semitism. Uh, how would it look not to include uh, this person? Uh, can you And there may be others that you've heard, but can you kind of react to those and, and, tell, and talk about how SCLM has really thought about it?
1: Yeah, this is this is a very complicated issue, uh, and it touches on a whole bunch of things that keep going back to the lack of a clear definition of what a saint is and what we consider to be the full range of of what it means to be a saint. Taking up specifically the the not baptized part, as I understand sainthood, sainthood is moving through the sacramental process of discipleship. uh, It's fully claiming your baptismal covenant, fully living out the baptismal covenant in in particularly edifying and important ways, living into the life of God that we've been baptized into. Can someone be a Christian saint who's not been baptized? I, I don't think that's possible because Christian sanctity is about living out that sacramental life living out the the full commitment of the baptism that that makes a challenge however there's also the kind of the flip side of that is um but aren't we don't we want to look at, at good people at at heroic people at virtuous people how can we how can we look at someone who is who's is virtuous who's selfless who, who worships the same god that we do and and not include him in this collection yeah, and and that was that was something that we wrestled with. Uh, but as you brought up, we have the the problem of appropriation. Personally, my perspective is is to say that we would include a Jewish person who did not see or understand themselves as a Christian. It, it's a form of supersessionism. It's a form of saying, well, they're really Christian; they just don't know it. And and I don't think that's that's being fair to the Jewish tradition. The other thing that's been brought up is, all right, well, what about we celebrate the three Christian chaplains? Well, but th- that cuts against uh, one of the main purposes of the, the proposal, proposed commemoration. The chaplaincy office brought this before us, partly because it shows the, the interfaith inner and uh, ecumenical nature of chaplaincy. And so to say, all right, we're going to remember these three guys as saints because they were baptized, we're not going to remember this guy seems to cut against
0: Uh, kind of the purpose there. Right, right. Where I come down on this for myself is um, I'm kind of perfectly happy to live in some of the ambiguity around this uh, because it certainly seems worthy of commemoration, but I I totally understand where people are coming from because, okay, so we've got one non-Christian on the calendar now through the Dorchester chaplains. um, How how wide can that door open? And I guess that's a question for another time. So how does a great cloud of witnesses differ from holy women, holy men?
1: I would say that the major difference is that holy women, holy men is is a sanctuary calendar, or, or that, that that's the the, the chief suggestion. When you look at it, you say, All right, this this reads like a sanctuary calendar. It, it appears to be that, especially because it says, you know, celebrating the saints. Great cloud of witnesses. Rather than being a liturgical document, is is really kind of a catechetical document. So the shift is not as much in its contents as it is in the perspective on what it contains. The reason we're saying it's a catechetical document is because going back to whether the the SCLM is the, the group that names saints, essentially one of our members, I said, I think said it best. He said, you know, it, it's time for us to get out of the sainting business. That's, that's not within our scope. Uh, we don't have the wherewithal to say who is and who isn't a saint. Um, and so, Great Cloud of Witnesses is a teaching document that says, hey, there are all these great folks who, have, who are important and significant in the life of the Church. These are people who have helped us to help the Episcopal Church moving into the 21st century to articulate who we are and to articulate what our sense of the Gospel is. Now, looking at these important and significant people, some of these we may well recognize and say, hey, you know, this person should be a Christian saint, so we're going to celebrate them, Eucharistically. But no one is being imposed on anyone. So we're not saying that, that any of these folks have to be remembered in that way. And so we're teaching these are some folks who are important and significant, do with them what you will.
0: And so if we go back to the Dorchester chaplains for a minute, and Mm -hmm. we change our understanding from uh, this being a sanctoral calendar to a catechetical document, um, it's much easier to say that regardless of what Rabbi Good's faith was, um, he is an example for us to follow as a Christian, and we don't really have to deal with the sainthood issue.
1: I would have a problem uh, having rabbi good and the dorchester chaplains in a central calendar i have absolutely no problem at all having them in the great clock of witnesses Mm -hmm. because it is it's it's a family history it's it's pointing to an example of uh of great heroism motivated by faith uh and that ecumenical and interfaith partnership uh that, that the chaplaincy in particular um exemplifies
0: so as I read through um, how to the uh, Great Cloud of Witnesses and I was trying to understand how to use it, um, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, but one of the other criticisms that I've seen of Holy Women and Holy Men is that it disrupts the daily office cycle. And it looks like a Great Cloud of Witnesses provides room for the commemorations and provides options for Eucharistic readings, but you, you can commemorate the people in the document while sticking with the daily office cycle, is that correct?
1: Well, what you're raising here is, is, I think, a liturgical education issue which has been on the table for a long time. Going back to Lesser Feasts and Fasts, it was never terribly clear about what it was or how it was supposed to be used. However, looking through the prayer book studies that led up to Lesser Feasts and Fasts, it's very clear that what they were intending, uh, Massey Shepard and others, were intending these to be Eucharistic text, Eucharistic propers, and one of the ways that that we can see this is is that under the twenty eight prayer book, um, the daily office had four readings, the Eucharist had two. So it was, it was pretty simple. You either had two readings, or you had four readings. If you had four, it was, it was office directed. Uh, if it was two, the eucharistically directed. With the arrival of the twenty eight prayer book, or I'm sorry, with the seventy nine prayer book. Both the Eucharist and the daily office had three readings: an Old Testament, a New Testament, and the Gospel. Mm -hmm. And so, when Lesser Feasts and Fasts came out with three readings, I I think there was some confusion there about, okay, how are we supposed to use these? And because Lesser Feasts and Fasts was rather reticent about what it was and how it was to be used, he didn't give a whole lot of direction. And so, I think you had people who said, well, there are three readings here; Uh, we should use it for the office. But that was never the intention as far as I'm concerned, as far as I read you know all the studies leading up to lesser peace and fast. so the readings there were never intended to be used as office readings. and whenever I run across people who raise that criticism, my response is but we shouldn't have been using these as office readings even under lesser feasts and facts. These were always Eucharistic uh, prophets okay. and so my con- you know, yes, the collect can and should be used in, in the Bailey office for the, the collect of the day, but not the readings.
0: All right. Wow, I've been doing it wrong for a long time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, well, I, I, I think there was some, some unclarity there, and hopefully great cloud of witnesses will help bring some of that clarity.
0: Great, great. Well, let, let's dig into the collects, because uh, if, um, because one of the other uh, activities that SCLM has really been involved in is revision to a lot of the collects in, in Holy Women, Holy Men. Why why do that project?
1: All right, uh, th- there, was, there was a big shift um, in 1980, actually when we look at the the early uh, prayer book studies documents they were wrestling with what sort of collect they should have and one of the options that they were were looking at was the the biographical collect and so that they wrote in in prayer book studies nine they said "All right, we tried the biographical collect um, but it really didn't work very well partly because it used um, kind of Illusions that were obscure unless you already knew who the person was and what they were doing um, And so they went with uh, collects that Focused more on uh, Sort of spiritual gifts and such mm-hmm. Well with the big revision in 1980 uh, There was, that was a, a rather significant change In the content of Lester Feast and fasts In 1980, not in the people being commemorated But in how they were commemorated and so that's where we had the introduction uh, of the biographical collect writ large and holy women holy men kind of took that notion of biographical collect and and moved it forward even more so the problem with these is that most of them are actually not collects, according to the the formal definition of what a collect is um... because formally speaking a collect if, is a unified thought. It is, it is one sentence. It can often be a pretty long sentence, but it's one sentence, it's, it's, it's one, one package of thought. Most of these tend to be two-sentence collages, two-sentence prayers, really. Um, you'll have one line which will say something about the person and, and what God called them to do. And then there'll be a second line that then will sort of interact with that.
0: So to give kind of um, an extreme example of this, which um, we'll be seeing uh, at a General Convention uh, during worship on July second, we're going to be commemorating Charles Barnes, and uh, I'm just going to read the collect that exists in Holy Women, Holy Men, so our listeners can get an example of what's going on here. Okay. So uh, the existing collect is, or well, it's not a collect, uh, but the existing prayer is. Loving God, we give you thanks for the life and ministry of your servant, Charles Raymond Barnes, who lived with the conviction that your your servants cannot walk in silence in front of injustice and crime, which took him to martyrdom in the Dominican Republic for denouncing the assassination of thousands of Haitian immigrants by order of the dictator Rafael Trujillo. We ask that his example may motivate us to give witness to our faith in all times and circumstances. Through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. So, uh, I think that exemplifies what you're talking about there. The first sentence gives a lot of uh, biographical detail. uh, A lot. Um, And then uh, the second sentence is asking for a uh, a response to that, uh, inspired by his life.
1: Right. What's at root here is that Christian prayer is always first and foremost speech to God. we're always talking to God first. God doesn't always need our talk, and so our prayer has a secondary purpose in terms of edification or formation of the worshiping body. I think in some of these, though, those two purposes get confused and and get flipped, and they become primarily speech to the gathered assembly and edification, rather than making sure that that the the primary focus is speech to God.
0: Mm. Yeah, so here's the new one. So I'll read the right two version here. Uh, Grant, we pray, merciful God, that your church, standing firm in the witness of your son and following the good example of your servant, Charles Barnes, may ever speak boldly against evil and confess the truth before the rulers of this world through your son, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God now and forever. Amen.
1: All right, so a couple of things here. First off, it doesn't tell his story, uh, but if this is a collect being used in a worship service, uh, presumably other pieces of that service are, are going to actually let us know what that story is. Instead of giving biographical detail, uh, we really went back to the notion of a baptismal ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when we are baptized, we are not baptized into, into certain professions or something, you know, nobody gets baptized as a lawyer. Um, instead, when we get baptized, when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, we receive the various gifts and, and callings of baptism. And so, therefore, these call acts are, are looking far more at what are the charisms of the Spirit? What are, what are the virtues of Christ? that we are putting on in baptism and then how do we show those forth to the world another piece here is that there is more continuity with, uh... our our classical language of prayer it's interesting when you look at the central collects uh... offered in the early editions of lesser peace and fast you can actually go back and the, the the SCL, the Standing Commission on Liturgy, music hadn't been added yet, um, if, if you look through their work, almost all of the collects have footnotes to say this is, you know, we, we borrowed this language from this particular prayer from Gregorian sacramentary, or we borrowed this language from a, a collect that appeared in, in the Sarum Missal. Um, and so these prayers participated within that deep history. If you listen to that particular prayer, the one that you just prayed, I hear within that real strong resonances to some of the the comments from martyrs. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so it it hooks these folks back, and, and our language to God, and our language to each other about them, it hooks them more deeply into our classical prayer speech.
0: Right, right. And then if, if going back to your uh, comments about baptismal ecclesiology, I just pulled out the baptismal covenant here to, to try to tie that back to some of the charisms in baptism. And I, I don't know if this, uh, is a, if this is an intentional explicit reference, but I see here, do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? And we see here, Charles Barnes may ever speak boldly against evil and confess the truth before the rulers of this world.
1: Yeah,
0: that, that's a, it's a direct
1: connection. Yeah, just
0: getting into one issue that that got a little technical. I I, I read uh, both the uh, weekday use, Eucharistic propers and I read the back and forth between uh, Scott Gunn and you, and mm-hmm. uh, even for a liturgy nerd, I got dizzy. Um, yeah, can you tell me what's going on here and why this is important?
1: One of the issues in the discussion that that Scott and I had is. One of my concerns about great cloud of witnesses is that I'm not entirely sure that people are going to see the difference between them. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I I see a shift between a liturgical document and a catechetical document. I'm not sure that everyone's going to see it that way, and I I think that uh, it's it's quite possible for folks to say, "Oh, this is just the next one. We just do with this what we did with the other." Um, and in some sense, I, I think that was kind of how Scott was approaching it, uh, is, is well, was it was just another version. And, and I may be reading him wrong on that, but that, that was certainly the, the sense that I got, because there were some, some of the distinctions, uh, for instance, around uh, the, the Dorchester chaplains, the inclusion of Rabbi Good, uh, that I just don't think are issues if we're approaching it from this new direction he was still having some real issues with. With the weekday Eucharistic propers, this is the kind of thing that is a helpful resource for parish priests who are doing midweek services. What that document is trying to do, uh, th- this also addresses that issue about there being not enough Ferial Days. Mm-hmm. To be perfectly honest, the last time we lost Ferial Days was in the 1980s. Uh, when when we added mary magdalene and uh... and james the brother of jesus mm. to the calendar because all of the folks in lesser peace and Fasts, all the people in holy women holy men all the folks in greater cloud of witnesses would be optional commemorations so we've never had to actually use any of these folks and so what great uh, what weekday eucharistic properties is trying to do is to put kind of the three big options in front of people and remind folks hey if you have a weekday service you can either celebrate the season or you can celebrate uh, a saint, or you can use one of these propers for various occasions and, and lift up uh, an aspect of the church, a doctrine, or, or something like that.
0: Right, and, and you know, we, we've commented uh, as we've been looking into some of these, uh, the, the uh, collects for various occasions on the collect call, that we've often wondered, is anybody using these? Uh, and it looks like weekday use Eucharist, Eucharistic propers is holding these up as explicit options.
1: Yes. They've always been explicit options, but they haven't been terribly visible. Right. And I, I don't think they've they've been used to the degree that they can or maybe even should.
0: So uh, just, just a quick pause for definition. Uh, can you say what a ferial day is?
1: Right. Uh, so within uh, the, the medieval Church calendar perspective, which is where we get a lot of this language. Um, you basically had two kinds of days. You had festal days, and you had ferial days. And so, a ferial day was a day where there was it wasn't a Sunday, and there wasn't a feast happening.
0: Okay. So, just kind of a regular day.
1: It's a basic day. Yeah. Yes. And the, the difference here is is that for in in the the old calendar. A ferial day was reckoned from midnight to midnight. It was just one whole day, it was a thing. Whereas feasts, uh, would, a feast day would be reckoned as, as longer or shorter than that based on what kind of feast it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, a ferial is just, just a regular old day.
0: Alright. So, so then, e- even though I've kind of gotten a little bit confused by some of the, uh, some of the back and forth about uh, weekday Eucharistic propers, all we're seeing here is options laid out so you can choose Path A, B, or C
1: that's correct okay and and it also provides for if you're going to remember someone eucharistically uh how would you go about doing it what prayers uh not prayers, what readings would you use right Uh, so that's another uh fairly significant change from holy women holy men uh in lesser Feast and fast holy women holy men uh there were readings given for all the various individuals uh instead of going that route. And and uh, some of the criticisms that we received around Holy Women and Holy Men is, why the heck do you put this reading with this person? This just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh and and partly it became an issue of well, if you're not gonna repeat a lot of these, um, then you have to get to some really creative places uh to figure out how to not reuse readings and yet get something that's even vaguely sort of appropriate for someone. Right. Uh, and, and so where we've gone with that is to say, you know what we a, a better option is is an expanded commons. So here are a bunch of readings that are really appropriate for, say, educators. Here's some that are really good for pastors. here's some that are really good for missionaries. here's some who are really good for martyrs. And that way, when you're looking at someone to celebrate and and when you and your local community are saying, hey, this is how we see this guy, or this is how we see this woman." really functioning in the community, well, you know, some parts of the Church might emphasize the martyr aspect of this person, but we don't. We really want to see this person as an educator. That way they can go to the education section and say, all right, let's let's pull out, let's use these readings, and then pair it with another one, perhaps from the martyr section, so that we can get a a fullness of how we understand this person within our local community. Mm
0: So there was one observation that you made in one of your blog posts that I thought was really interesting. And I don't think the proposals from SCLM go there at this point. But you had noted that you personally don't have a problem uh, with observing multiple saints on a single day. That, that, that's consistent with some past practice uh, in the church, although not necessarily the Episcopal Church. Uh, can you say more about that?
1: Sure, um, I'm a medievalist by training. So I'm, uh, while I'm a New Testament scholar, most of my work is in how the Scripture has been used in the liturgy and how early medieval monastic communities embodied Scripture uh, in liturgy, in practice, in, in um, sort of living living lives towards holiness. When you look in in the medieval liturgies, you'll you'll often have. A whole bunch of different people celebrated on the same day and what this is doing is as far as i'm concerned looking at this as a modern episcopalian i see this as really contributing to our baptismal ecclesiology because it's reminding us hey look at all these cool people uh who were heroic often in extremely different ways um so any given day You'll probably have, uh, you know, a, a, a second-century martyr who's, uh, you know, who was fed to some lions. Uh, you'll have a, a sixth-century hermit uh, who stood on a pillar for several years. Um, uh, you might have a, a, a princess uh, in a, you know, a Slavic kingdom or somewhere who, uh, who's known for her works of mercy. And you might have priests from the 16th century who did a lot of really important writing. All those people together are showing us in a single snapshot, on a single day, hey, this is the wide variety of vocations in the Church. People are doing all sorts of things, honoring Christ, showing forth the light of Christ in their lives in these very different ways, and yet all of them doing that same basic thing. So, I don't have a problem with multiple people, or even a whole bunch of people, on each day. What it comes down to, though, is And and the question about Ferial Days really gets into sort of, are we obscuring our focus on Sunday and on sort of the the patterns of of the life of Christ in the temporal cycle, or are we lifting up the saints too much?
0: Mm -hmm. Derek, you've been uh, incredibly generous uh, with your time and your insights this morning, and even more so with uh, a lot of the heavy lifting you've been doing um, for uh, SCLM and explaining your work online. Um, if our listeners want to uh, learn more about uh, what you've been up to and follow your writing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: best way to do that is to follow my blog, uh, and that is at Uh And you can follow me on Twitter, where uh, I'm at Halliwork, that's H-A-L-I-G-W-E-O-R-C.
0: Great. Well, uh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thanks for having time
0: to talk to me. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Derek for spending the time with me. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not reading Derek's blog, i got to tell you, you're doing it wrong. Go to www.saintbeadproductions.com this instant. You can keep up with The Collect Call by following us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To find out how, go to acts8moment.org and click on The Collect Call. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet at us at the Collect Call, or drop us a line via email at the Collect Call at Acts8Moment.org. The Collect Call live show spectacular will be happening on Sunday, June 28th at 7 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Hilton. I hope you'll join us for that. We're going to have special guests from Easter People and Padres Pods. Also, please come to the Acts 8 Prayer Gathering tonight, June 25th at 9:15 p.m. Also at the Salt Lake City Hilton. To find out more about either of those events, check out the Acts 8 Facebook page at facebook.com slash acts8moment or at acts8moment.org. Check out the other shows in the Via Media Collective, a network of podcasts with an Anglican sensibility, at viamediacollective.org. Our music is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence by Aaron DeVries, distributed under a Creative Commons license. Find more of Aaron's music at badgerland.bandcamp.com. And we'll see you soon for another installment of our General Convention series. Holly, where are you? Let all mortal flesh keep silence And with fear and trembling stand
1: Ponder nothing earthly-minded For with blessing in his
0: hand Christ our God to earth Descended Our full homage to